You're listening to a new sermon series from Sojourn Church Carlisle, entitled All in the Family. Over the next few weeks, we'll be sharing how to cultivate a strong relationship with God through managing our finances, as well as maintaining strong relational dynamics in both familial and non-familial contexts. We hope that this series will give a clear vision and a much deeper appreciation of how God is calling each of us to become faithful stewards of our finances, of our families, and of our friendships. Sojourn Church, Carlisle family, this is Pastor Nick Wyrens here. For those who don't know me, I serve as the Associate Pastor at Sojourn Carlisle. Um, for those who were able to join us this past Sunday, you know that um, my family and I had tested positive for COVID, and unfortunately, part two of uh, our uh, money topic sermon series uh, that we're studying in our bigger series, All in the Family, I wasn't able to give. So um, I was really disappointed in that, but um, honestly, it might be for the better. I had a, had a good uh, 5,000 words, which is about 1,500 words more than I usually preach. So um, it's actually probably better suited for this medium of podcast than maybe uh, at church on Sunday. Um, anyways, we hate that we weren't able to be there and be present, but um, I'm really excited to at least still be able to offer this teaching in this format. Um, I know many will miss it, but um, for those who want to engage, we wanted to at least make the teaching available. Um Well, the reading for today comes from Luke 12, uh, looking at verses 13 through 21. This is um, an interaction with Jesus here from the word of the Lord. Then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Then he said, beware, guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to them, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, for those who were able to to hear my sermon last week, you know, we looked at a biblical theology of money, which is simply asking the question, what does the Bible say about money? Now, um, as I mentioned last week, um, <clears throat> the Bible has 2,300 verses about money, right? So God says a lot about our money. So to narrow it down, we looked at uh, the book of Proverbs. Um, now it's too much to, to kind of give an overview of that, uh, that whole teaching. So if you um, want to listen to that, I'd say press pause now and, and go back and listen to that biblical theology of money just to give you an understanding of what God's word says about your money. But to kind of give a big overview um, the main things that I wanted us to understand and, and look at um, in terms of our money is first and foremost, God cares about your money because God cares about you. 
money is something that touches every aspect of our lives. You know, like it touches uh, our church life. It touches our work lives. It touches our everyday lives, right? It's like groceries cost money, gas to go in your car costs money. All these things cost money. So money in a weird way touches everything. So we need to remember that God cares about money because he cares about you. That's kind of the first big principle. And then the second big principle that I think we see um, with regards to our money is, I use this phrase, it's not the amount in the account, it's the posture of the heart, meaning that both the rich and the poor can have issues with money no matter what, right? Um, There's kind of a a different uh, way of saying that is is, um, the rich can struggle with money as the poor can struggle with money. The rich can have a great relationship with money, a healthy God-honoring relationship with money, and the poor can have a healthy, God-honoring relationship with money. So it's not the amount in the account, it's the posture of the heart that's important. And then finally, one of the things I didn't necessarily hit on last week, but a way to kind of overarching, uh, take an overarching look at, um, at money in general, there's both a dark side to money and a light side to money, meaning there's good from money and there's bad from money. I wouldn't go so far as to say money is neutral, as some may say, right? Because I, I think Paul says uh, in First Timothy, right, it's the root of all evil, right? That doesn't exactly ex- scream neutrality to me. Um, I think just like gravity, right, it, it kind of has a gravitational pull towards, um, I, I guess, opening us up towards evil if we're not careful. But there is both a good and a bad to money, right? It has immense power, and that power can be stewarded for good or for evil. So with those things in mind, um, I, I, I did hit last week just a couple prefatory remarks. Um, I know anytime we're talking about money, like it, it can bring stuff up in us. And so I just wanted to recognize that. So um, I, I hit more last week, but just a couple important ones that I want to hit again um, as I look at this week's sermon on money. Um, is the first is my hope and desire in, in this sermon, or I, I guess I've been called that in this podcast, um, is that anything I say would be invitation, not condemnation. Okay, invitation and not condemnation. Now, sometimes what happens is we hear things and they confront us, but remember that God's word always <laughs> or often confronts us, right? If we're reading God's word um, and, and it's not confronting us, uh, I, I think Tim Keller says it one way that if your God does not ever confront you, you've probably made God in your own image, right? Uh, the God of the universe, because he's perfect and we are not, sometimes he will bring things to us that um, are confrontational. But um, we need to remember that if we are in Christ Jesus, there is no more condemnation for us, right? So if you hear things and, and, and it cuts deeper to the core and it feels condemnatory, um, please hear me that God is not condemning you and I am not trying to condemn you. So please, I, I ask that you would forgive me if that's the case. Um, but the hope is that I would speak from a place that offers invitation, not condemnation. And then the second prefatory remark, again, trying to get everything out of the way in a sense so we can dive dive in. Um, the, this whole idea of us covering money, money um, for the first two weeks, I want you guys to know and understand that this conversation is bigger than growing our church budget, okay? I think many of us, as we think about conversations of money in the church, it's all about giving, 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 right? So giving is the ends and and having these conversations, like getting you to have a budget or getting you to simplify things in your life, they're means to an end. The means is you're doing these things. The end is that you give more money to the church. And though I think giving to the church um, or being generous, uh, generally speaking, though I think those are parts of having a healthy relationship with money, that's not the whole thing, right? And so 
just know that even even this week when I when I lay things out and again by God's grace invite rather than condemn <laughs> uh, as I do those things just know that my posture is not to try and wrestle up more money for the giving buckets okay my my desire is that you would have a, a holistic healthy relationship with money so I, I wrote out here in a tagline for this topic specifically my goal in this sermon this week is that is that people um, would walk away knowing what it looks like to potentially have a healthy, intentional financial life that leads to God's glory and your flourishing. So my desire is that you would have, and this is generally speaking, that you would have a healthy, intentional financial life that leads to God's glory and leads to your flourishing. So as we think about moving from biblical theology, you know, what does God's word say about our money to a practical theology? What now might we do I'm going to look at it from a little bit of a different angle. Again, one that you probably, um, if you spent any time in the church, it may not have gone this route. Um, not to say that I'm special or better. I'm just looking at it differently, trying to look at it through different lenses. Um, but what I want to do is I, I want to give actually broader practices um, that, honestly, the more I've reflected on them, I, I think it could probably be like a way of life, right? Like make me maybe a life philosophy or if that's too grandiose for you, like I think this could be applied to other things like potentially your technology use or um, how you handle your time. Um, but so there's three practices that I'm going to look at. Again, these are really broad and we'll kind of narrow down as we talk about each one. But there's three broad practices that I want to look at. The first is intentionality. The second is simplicity. And the third is accountability. So intentionality, simplicity, and accountability. Now, to concretize those a little bit, you know, bring them down a little bit more and say like, okay, if that's a life philosophy thing, we'll, I'll add a tag a tagline for it, right? So financial intentionality. That answers the question, as Christ followers, what is our aim or our vision for our money? Second, financial simplicity. As disciples of Jesus, how can we declutter our lives, like both literally and figuratively, to better serve that one aim or vision given by God. And then the third, financial accountability. As a community of saints, how can we spur one another on to pursue our vision together and better, right? Together and better. So with those in mind, those three practices in mind, before we dive in, I do want to say a quick prayer for us. Um, So uh, let's pray together. Um, God, I do thank you that you have um, given us uh, stewardship over over the, the things that are yours, over your money and your possessions. They're, they're ultimately yours. And um, so, God, I ask that you would help us to be better stewards of those things. Um, I do pray, God, that you would be with me as I speak, uh, though not face-to-face with people um, in this medium of, of podcasting. I ask that you would help me to speak in a way that um, is inviting and not condemnatory, that is one of inspiration rather than coercion. Um, and, and most importantly, Holy Spirit, again, though this is not speaking face-to-face, I do pray that um, we as a people at Southern Church Carla will be changed um, as we continue to pursue and look at what it means to be stewards of our money and our possessions. Holy Spirit, we know that your word speaks powerfully. So even here uh, in this medium, we trust that your word can move and go forth in powerful ways. And I ask Holy Spirit that you would do just that, that it would not be about me or having a really cool um, sermon podcast on something a little bit different or talking about a big topic of money, but help me, God, holy, by the power of your spirit um, to invite and inspire rather than condemn and coerce God. And we know that you are the one that changes hearts. And so we ask that you would do that even for those listening today. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
So as I said, I wanted to look at three big practices, okay? So the first is intentionality, intentionality. So did you know that uh, it really is true that people who are lost in the wilderness will just walk in a circle? <laughs> now, of course, that's like on a cloudy day, right? Or if you're stuck in the, in the forest. Um, there's lots of theories, right? And apparently it doesn't have to do with leg dominance or people having a slight variation of leg length, right? Um, I, again, I don't know all the intricacies of it, but the reality is like, if you don't have direction, if you don't have a compass or if it's a cloudy day and you're not looking at the sun, you will walk in circles, wandering aimlessly. If you are lost, did you also know that there is in flying, there is a rule of thumb called the one in 60 rule it states that if a pilot travels 60 miles and is one mile off track, then there was a one per a one degree error in their heading, meaning the way they lined up their plane from uh, from takeoff. Um, now, if we flew to Los Angeles here from Louisville with, with just one degree tracking error, we would end up 30 miles south in Irvine, California. Now, you're like, well, you're still in the LA metro, so we're good, I guess. Well, okay, that's fine. But let's change our tracking error, error, error to a measly four degrees off, right? If we have our tracking error, error um, on an airplane and it's four degrees off, we would actually end up 120 miles south in San Diego. Well, okay, also not a bad place to be, I guess, but how do these things relate? Well, well, they show us that direction is important. So not only do we need something to look at, to aim at, or somewhere to go, but it shows us that even a small miscalibration can actually have a huge impact the longer it goes on, right? So the one in 60 degree rule, the, the further we fly, the further off target we get if we have off shot our destination from the get-go, right? Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, as we think about our lives, we, we most often experience flourishing or the good life when we live with intention. Okay, we, we most often experience flourishing or the good life when we live with intention. Yet, as we think about our money and possessions, many of us are, are just lost in the woods without a compass, walking in circles, or worse, our, our heading is off by a few or many degrees, taking us to a place where we don't want to go. Much of today's modern culture is about making your meaning, your purpose, your intention, right? It's, it's you being you and you coming up with, uh, with, with your direction in life from, inter from internal means, right? The internal locust of control, which frankly is exhausting. And I would argue is a fool errand, a fool's errand. Now, the Christian though, right? We are by God's grace. Thank you, God, that you give us direction from Jesus, Right? We don't have to like make something up. We don't have to give ourselves purpose or intent. God has given us purpose or intent in life. Now, if you remember last week, we saw in the teachings of Jesus, a well-known passage in which Jesus gives his followers pretty much their direction, their, their bearings, their, their aiming point. He says in Matthew 6, 33 through 34, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Talking, He was talking about food, clothing, the, the, the daily needs in our lives. Then he says in verse 34, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The aiming point, friends, that the end goal for the follower of Jesus is to seek first the kingdom of God. This is a, a life-altering reality, right? We have been given purpose by God. We have been given a direction, an intention to show that this is about direction and show you how this connects to our money and possessions. Remember that this call to seek first the kingdom of God, it comes off the heel of one of Jesus' most universally confrontational verses, right? Earlier in Matthew 6, verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. 
since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, Jesus says. Friends, that's a a statement of direction, of intent. You can't travel from Louisville to LA and New York at the same time. Those are in completely different directions. You can set your bearings towards see you can you can set the, your bearings towards seeking the kingdom of God and his, and his righteousness or you can set your bearings to seeking money. Those are opposite directions, friends, and Jesus tells us that. Now, most of us would would likely say, well, yes, that's my intent. That's my direction in life as a Christian. But we struggle to see that that intent actually drives us. It pushes us forward. We struggle to actually be intentional with that intent. But I think that's the invitation for us. When we allow God's purpose for our lives to drive us to, to, to be a priority, it helps bring clarity in every aspect of our lives, including our finances. You know, I just uh, started this book the other day called Essentialism, which is actually a productivity book. You know, the ties between time and money and technology, they have weird commonalities that I don't quite know what to do with. But Greg McEwen, he, he writes this, and he's actually, again, talking about productivity and time, not money, but I think it can be applied to um, our, our conversation for today. Here's what he says. He says, an essential intent, or, or here a vision, or a direction, or a purpose, like Matthew 6, 33, an essential, an essential intent is one decision, one decision that settles 1,000 later decisions. It's like deciding you're going to be a doctor instead of becoming a lawyer. One strategic choice eliminates a universe of other options and maps a course for the next 5, 10, or 20 years of your life, dare I say, eternity. Once the big decision is made, all subsequent decisions come into better focus. So why is intentionality so important? Well, when we resolvedly set out towards our intent, our purpose, our vision, then decisions can be made for us. The life we have chosen to live answers the question of yes or no for us. And isn't that what Jesus' parable of the hidden treasure and of the priceless pearl are about in Matthew 13, 44 through 46, right? Jesus teaching to uh, the crowds, giving a parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. He goes on again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and bought it. That's one decision that leads to a thousand decisions. Friends, the sacred confession that we always hear when people experience baptism at our church, the sacred confession, Jesus is Lord, is actually an economic confession. (laughs) It is a a statement of purpose in essential intent, as McEwen says it, for how you relate to to your money and possessions. The sacred confession, Jesus is Lord, it says money is not my Lord. Possessions are not my Lord. Why does intentionality matter as we relate to our money and finances or or just generally in life? Well, as I said earlier, it gives us clarity, okay? Having an intent is required to live intentionally, to manage our money and possessions intentionally. It's one decision that makes thousands of decisions. So 
it then is this intentionality that leads us to our next practice of simplicity. So I'm going to break simplicity up in a few different ways. First, we're going to look at the why. Like, what does it even matter? Second, we're going to look at the what. Okay, what is this practice? And then third, I'm going to hit a bunch of different practices to talk about the how. So the why, okay, give you the the, the purpose behind it. The what, how, what does it actually look like or what are we talking about? And then the how. How could I do this in my everyday life? So to understand the practice of simplicity, we, we first need to look at, at the why, right? What is the problem? Well, to understand that, we need to go back to the beginning of one of the most influential shifts in American culture. That shift, what is it? It's the shift to a consumer culture, to a culture of consumption. Few, uh, if any of you know who Edward Bernays is, okay, I certainly didn't, right? Um, but if you do, good on you. Uh, he's not nearly as well known as his uncle, Sigmund Freud, right? You all probably know Sigmund Freud. Um, but anyways, Edward Bernays, he's often referred to uh, as the, the father of public relations, right? His obituary uh, called him the father of spin. <laughs> uh, he was an American pioneer in public relations and propaganda, right? That's kind of intense, but um, that was, or still is a thing, I guess. Now, when we talk about propaganda with Bernays, it's a little bit different, but um, it's more in the public relations realm. But anyways, neither here nor there, right? At the height of the Industrial Revolution, okay, something was going on. Companies had grown extremely in productivity during the First World War, okay? But these companies, now that the war had ended, faced a problem. They had the capacity to produce just insane amounts of, of things, of stuff. But what was happening, what would happen if people got the items that they needed, <laughs> Right? Well, they wouldn't need anything else. So in that day and time, right, products were made and sold simply to meet needs. Advertising was focused on meeting a need. So like, you need shoes, so you go buy one pair of nice, high-quality leather shoes. And then you're done, right? You bought, you had a need, you filled it with this product that this company was making to fill your need. But you see here, with the concern for overproduction, something had to change. Now, enter this man, Bernays, and his partner, Paul Mazur, who uh, he worked with. Uh, Paul Mazur was, a, was a, um, a, a, I don't know if he was a banker, but he was, he was, um, he was on staff at Lehman Brothers. Um, he wrote this in 1927. Um, and again, he worked with Edward Bernays. We'll get to Bernays in a second. Um, but Paul Mazur, he said this, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, <laughs> to want new things even before the old had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. So enter Bernays, the father of spin. Following the influential insights of his uncle, he, he knew and understood that humans are not nearly as rational as we think we are, right? That's why behavioral economists say, hey, here's what people should be doing, but they don't do that because we're ultimately not as rational as we think, right? Um, for, for the Christian, we, we know this is the, the kind of Romans 7 de internal debate of uh, what Paul says. He says, I don't do the things that I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do, right? It's like we're not nearly as rational as we think we are. Freud understood that, and his nephew, Bernays, started to understand that and apply that to, um, to, uh, to economic realities, to advertising, to marketing. Um, and so Bernays, he realized that appeals could be made 
to deeper desires, right? More, more than just trying to meet needs as a company, that he could have his companies that were his clients appeal to deeper desires. And by doing so, that he could then essentially pull strings, that he could manipulate what was bought, okay? Here's what Edward Bernays said in his book, Propaganda. Okay, I didn't read a book called um, Propaganda. I just, you know, it's like this floats around in, in, the, in the church world. But anyways, this is what Bernays says, okay? He says, the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society. Those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government, which is the true ruling power of our country. We are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of. In almost every act of our daily lives, whether in the sphere of politics or business, in our social conduct or our ethical thinking, we are dominated by the relatively few, the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind. <laughs> Bernays was ahead of his time, and he saw that this shift, if not moved, if he didn't move it himself, he saw that the shift from a needs-based culture to a desire-based culture was uh, was was key was integral for these mega producing companies to actually be able to continue operating with capacity and for them to survive and make a profit by pulling on the string of desire. Bernays was saying you could manipulate people to buy what you wanted them to buy rather than what they needed to buy. It's a little intense, right? Sounds a little bit conspiratorial, right? Maybe some like backwoods uh, message board stuff that we might read. But let's fast forward to a second to the modern age, to the age of, of big data or algorithms, right? Technology has become so sophisticated and our, and our devices collect so much information that oftentimes the behind the scenes algorithms, if not usually, often know more than us, nor, know more about us than we do. And those algorithms, they're not used to just give us what they need, what we need, right? They're not just like, oh, you know, like, Pastor Nick, he, he's got a hole in his shoes, right? What is happening now is that our devices, big data, algorithms, they're being used to create need, to pull on that string of desire to change my desire into something that I need. Okay, in his book, Who Made That Decision? You or an Algorithm? Kartik uh, Hosanagar, I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly. He's a, he's a teacher at, Wharton, at the Wharton Business School. Here's what he writes. Okay, this is kind of crazy, but... Um, it's legit, man. It's everywhere. Um, he says, algorithms pervade our lives. Sometimes we see it, like Amazon's recommendations, and sometimes we don't. But they have a huge impact on decisions we make. On Amazon, for example, more than one-third of the choices that we make are influenced by algorithmic recommendations, like, quote-unquote, people who bought this also bought this, right? You know, they give you like a whole bundle of books that you now need to buy together. It gets me often. Uh, another quote, people who viewed this eventually bought that. Um, Kartik goes on, he says, on Netflix, algorithms drive more than 80% of the viewing activity. Algorithmic recommendations also influence decisions such as whom we date and marry. <laughs> In apps like Tinder, algorithms create most 
of the matches. Now that's kind of crazy to think about, right? That these algorithms, these um, non-persons, these machines can have influence on things like who we marry and who we date. Now friends, I would say that we now live in a culture that Paul Mazur, the, the, um, the, the Lehman Brothers uh, employee proposed. We live in a desires culture. As one author put it, uh, Arthur Gish, uh, in his book, Beyond the Rat Race, he says, we buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. I've heard others elaborate on that say and say, with money we don't have, right? We live in a consumeristic culture, a culture that buys things not out of need, but out of want. There's this idea called planned obsolescence, meaning um, companies now uh, 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 give you this idea that something is obsolete. Case in point. Every year, Apple comes out with a new iPhone, right? Suddenly, my, my, uh, my iPhone 12 that was working great yesterday now feels like a piece of junk. How does it feel so slow now, right? <laughs> it's this idea of planned obsolescence that companies now make you think the thing that you have no longer is functional or, or useful. It's obsolete. It's like you're, you're a grandpa if you have older than an iPhone 12, right? It's this idea of planned obsolescence. It, it's pulling on desire rather than on need. You see, the, the issue, friends, or, or maybe the, the, deep, the deep problem with this is that human desire is insatiable. It can't be satisfied with stuff. Why? Because our desires are not meant to be filled by things, but by God. Right? And you see, that's what Jesus is getting at in our text from today. Again, looking at Luke 12, 13 through 14, he says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you guys? And he said to him, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Why? And hear this, friends. In our culture, this is something we need to take to the bank. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, if this was a confrontation from Jesus to a simple <laughs> agrarian society that didn't have Amazon, that didn't have Google, that didn't have Facebook algorithms or planned obsolescence, how much more does it confront our bigger is better, new is better, more is better American consumer culture? The problem is that we think we need more than we really do to be happy, when in actuality we need very little to be satisfied. 1 Timothy 6, 8, it says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. How simple. If we have food and clothing, and I would probably add shelter, we will be content with these things. What's more challenging is that not only do we struggle with this, but we are told consistently, if not incessantly by our culture, society, advertisers, maybe even friends and family, that we need more stuff and money to be happy. And this isn't a trifling matter, right? This isn't like some small thing, like it's just something that we should think about. If you remember back in the parable of the good, so uh, the good soils, one of the seeds falls amongst the thorns, it sprouts up, then it gets choked out. And why does Jesus say it gets choked out in Mark 4, 19? He says it, the seed that falls amongst thorns gets choked out because the worries of this age, the deceitfulness of wealth or money, and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, God's word, and then the seed becomes unfruitful. 
spiritual disciplines guru, Richard Foster, he said this uh, in 1978, mind you, right? He says, we are trapped in a maze of competing attachments. Our money and possessions compete for our attachment that is rightfully reserved for King Jesus. That's why Jesus says in Luke 12, watch out, be on your guard, right? You see there, he gives a double warning. It's not just something that like, eh, you can kind of think about sometimes. He says, no, 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 you have to be vigilant about this. You have to watch out. And no, don't, don't just watch out. Don't just like have your eyes peering back and forth, but be on your guard, have your dukes up, be ready to fight. Jesus is emphasizing the importance of being on high alert against all, not just some, all types of greed. So how do we do that then? Okay, if that's the, the why, the problem, the, 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 the thing that we are facing in our culture, well, there's um, a practice that um, may be uncommon to some, but uh, maybe common to others uh, called simplicity. Okay, that's where simplicity enters in for us. Now, um, as I think personally about spiritual disciplines or, or practices or um, the habits of Jesus, whatever you want to call them, right, there, there's typically kind of two categories to think of. One category is is putting off, right, or sorry, putting on. Um, so you're, you're kind of adding things, adding things to your, your, uh, your daily habits, right? So Bible reading, prayer, scripture memorization, right? Those are putting things on. And then there's also a putting off, right? Sometimes these are called ascetic practices, A-S-C-E-T-I-C, ascetic, not aesthetic. Um, So ascetic practices, right? These are things that we put off. These things include um, like fasting or Sabbath or silence and solitude or um, like we're looking at today, simplicity. These spiritual disciplines of putting off, they allow us to set something aside to first help us see how we relate to that thing. And then two, to remind ourselves that that thing is not our God. So what does it look like for some of these practices? Let's look at fasting, right? In fasting, we set aside food. We put it off to see how we relate to it. Okay, maybe I always try to eat when my kids are freaking out, right? It's like, or when I'm sad, uh, <laughs> I go and get chips, right? It's like we, we, we fast and we set food off in a sense to see how we relate to it. And then it also reminds us that food is not our God, right? That as Jesus says, we live on more than bread alone. Let's look at Sabbath, right? It's a practice where we set aside our work to see how we relate at it, to, to take a step back and look at it with fresh eyes and to remind ourselves that we are sons and daughters of God, regardless of whether or not we're working, striving or earning, right? So we put it off to see how we relate to it and to remind ourselves that that is not our God. So like other putting off quote unquote practices, simplicity helps us to set down our money and possessions, to set it aside, to help us one, see how we relate to it. And two, remind ourselves that we don't serve money, but God. Richard Foster, again, he writes, simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying us. Simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives so that possessions can be genuinely enjoyed without destroying us. So then, what is simplicity? What does the practice look like? Well, um, some some authors that have written uh, stuff on simplicity, I just want to give you a few of their definitions. Um, Richard Foster, again, uh, he defines simplicity, I love this, as a life of joyful 
unconcerned for possessions. <laughs> I love that. So it's joyful, a life of joyful, unconcerned for possessions. There's a lightheartedness about that, right? It, it, it experiences things as the joy that they are, right? God allows us to enjoy our creation, but it also says like, okay, I don't need that thing, right? It's like, man, I can, I can enjoy an iPhone, but if I have to go to a flip phone, I'm not concerned about it, right? Um, it's a, a life of joyful unconcern for possessions. Um, Adele Cal- Calhoun in her great book, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook, um, she defines simplicity as letting go of the tangle of wants, hear that desire, so we can receive the simple gifts of life that cannot be taken away. I think that's beautiful. So simplicity, she, as she, she defines it as letting go of the tangle of wants so we can receive the simple gifts that cannot be taken away. She goes on to elaborate on this. She says, sleeping, eating, walking, giving and receiving love. The benefits we take for granted are amazing gifts, right? Those things can't be taken from you. Simplicity, she goes on, simplicity invites us into these daily pleasures that can then open us up to God who is present in them all. So then how would I define simplicity? Well, uh, stealing a little bit from uh, the... the um, the author Greg McEwen, who again in his book Essentialism, um, he, he says essentialism is the disciplined pursuit of less. Well, um, if I'm going to look at simplicity and define it in terms of money and possessions, I'm going to say the intentional pursuit of less. The intentional pursuit of less. That's what simplicity is. Now, again, this can be a life philosophy, I think, right? Like, um, but for our for our current conversation, it, it's a practice for our money and possessions. When we pursue less money, less possession, it turns Jesus's statement into a practice, rather than just intellectually thinking about the fact that life doesn't com- consist of more stuff of an abundance possession, as Jesus says in Luke twelve. We're actually backing that up with our actions. Oftentimes, if not always, our actions can lead our minds to change. Right. We think a lot of times that we think our way into acting, but it can work the other way. We can actually act our way into thinking. I may not always love my children, right? But if I practice love, even when I'm frustrated with them, I can actually counterintuitively act my way into thinking, into reminding myself of, of the love I have for them, right? When I'm frustrated and I hug my son, it reminds me how much I love his tender embrace, even if he's screaming in my face, right? Uh, so our, 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 um, our spiritual disciplines of our body, the things we do with our body, those spiritual disciplines can actually help and remind us of what we truly believe. Um, author John Mark Comer in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he says the goal here in simplicity, the goal here is to live with a high degree of intentionality around what matters most which for those who apprentice under Jesus is Jesus himself and his kingdom. Don't miss that. Simplicity must be built on intentionality. It must be built on a purpose, on a mission. So the foundation of the house of simplicity, if you will, is the purpose that Jesus gives us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, unpacking a little bit more simplicity, Richard Foster, in another book he he wrote called The Freedom of Simplicity, he says that there are three attitudes, uh, three inward realities that actually then give way to the outward reality of simplicity. Here are these three attitudes of simplicity that he outlines. He says, uh, first, it's an attitude that what we have, we receive as a gift, right? And I would add, look at James 1, 17, and 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So what we have, um, we receive as a gift. 
The second attitude that's important for, for uh, the practice of simplicity is having a posture that what we have is to be cared for by God. I would say, look at Psalm 50 verse 10 for that, right? God owns everything. And so he should have input in that, right? We can't just say, well, God, you know, like I gave my tithe. That's the part that you're allowed to care about. And then the 90% is about me. No, no, no. That's not how it works. So the three attitudes of simplicity, again, what, what we have, we receive as a gift. Two, what we have is to be cared for by God, or God should be allowed to speak into it. Um, and, and the third attitude is that what we have is available to others. What we have is available to others. Look at Acts 4.32, right? Barnabas, um, he, he, uh, he stewards his stuff for the good of the church, right? Um, in Acts 4.32, right, I, I think it says, too, that they, sh- they um, had everything in common. And they basically shared all their possessions with each other, right? It's like what, what, in the church, what, what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Now, this is basically, right, if, you're, if you want to look at Scripture for, for these practices even further, this is, I think, what the Apostle Paul is getting at um, in 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. This is what he says. This is the New Living Translation. He says, um, uh, he says, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. That's the first posture, right? We receive it as a gift. Verse 18, he says, Tell them to use their money to do good. (laughs) They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. That's posture number three, or attitude number three from Foster. Always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future, the eternal state, so that they may experience true life, the good life, the flourishing life. Now, for some of you, you know, the practice of simplicity it might sound like uh, another pop psychology trend that you've seen over the last 10 to 20 years. Like it's minimalism or the 10 item wardrobe or the capsule wardrobe or Marie Kondo and the magic art of tidying up or Mr. Money Mustache and fire, which is uh, financially independent, retire early, right? But friends, simplicity is an ancient Christian practice, right? Just, just because uh, a non-Christian stumble upon things that the church has been practicing forever. It doesn't mean we should like throw those out, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. We should get rid of them or we can't do them because it's like too poppy, right? It's like, no, like uh, all truth is God's truth. Like, of course, people are going to grope about and stumble upon things that the church has been teaching for, for literal millennia, right? Not only did Jesus and Paul do it, but the early church in Acts modeled it. Early church fathers like Augustine and the desert fathers, they practiced simplicity, Medieval saints like Francis of Assisi and Blaise Pascal, right? They practiced simplicity and argued for practicing simplicity. Even fast forwarding, right? If you're like, well, those are all Catholics. Well, Protestant heroes like Richard Baxter, John Wesley, they called for simplicity in life because they took seriously Jesus' command or Jesus' statement that abundance is not, or life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. This is an ancient practice, friends. And I think that it, it, we should venture into, that we should explore as the church. So what does it look like to to step into simplicity, to intentionally pursue less, intentionally pursue less money, less possessions, less things? Before we dive into these practices, I just want you to notice that in Jesus' teaching, right? Jesus, oftentimes, he doesn't um, give us like hard and fast rules, but rather 
um, principles to live by that, that should lead us and guide us. And then he encourages us to pursue wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So Jesus doesn't tell you how many shirts you should have in your closet or whether or not to buy a new versus a used car or, um, I mean, insert, insert question mark, you know, he doesn't tell you what stock to buy or invest in, or should you invest in stocks? You know, I, I mean, we, we can talk about that another time, but he, he doesn't give you hard and fast rules, but rather gives you kind of principles. So, um, like all practices, I, I, I just, I want to say at the outset, right, we need to remember that the practice itself does not save us. And as such, the way we practice may look different from person to person. So even as I lay some of these ideas out, right, these are kind of like hows, like what could I or should I do to take a next step towards pursuing simplicity? As I lay some of these out, some of these may be applicable for you based on your story, your life stage, or your situation. And then some of them may not. Some of these may be really good next steps for you. And then some of them may not, right? So again, I'm just trying to give you like an idea, like, okay, what could this look like for me to step into? I'm not trying to give you like rules to live by. Okay, that, that's the issue with the Pharisees um, is that they took these principles. Then they said, okay, we live this way. Now everyone should live this way. So some of these things, I, I do think these are really great practices or ways to step in. Um, but some of them, again, they may not they may not be right for you. Okay, this is just try to, trying to give you a picture of what it could look like for you. And you should pursue the Lord in wisdom and ask like, hey, what would a next step look, for, look like for me in the practice of simplicity? but then also invite others in. We'll talk about um, inviting others in in a second. So first, the how. Um, <clears throat> a, a really great list uh, of like practices for this. Again, John Mark Comer in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he's got like 12 practices. I've tried to distill it down and, and give you maybe some different practices that I think are helpful in, in pursuing simplicity. Um, so I'm just going to walk through those. Um, again, remember, this is invitation, not condemnation. Um, we'll talk more about what next steps um, could look like for you. So practice number one, um, or, or a, a next step maybe, next step number one, live by a budget. Uh, Proverbs 27, 23, it says, know well the condition of your flock and pay attention to your herds. Now, I know urban chicken raising is like in vogue, um, but I don't think a lot of you have goats or sheep. So like, what does this mean then for us? Like, does it, we, we just cross it out in our Bibles because we don't have flocks or, or herds these days? Well, if you remember, okay, the, uh, the book of Proverbs, right? This is ancient Near East. This is actually like pre the the um, the creation of money, like it, as a technology. Like there weren't coins at this time, right? That we see um, in the New Testament, there are coins, like physical money. Back then, uh, uh, wealth or um, or money, I, I it's hard to say money. Mar- oh, sorry. Okay, markers of wealth back then is like how how many goats you had, right? Goats and sheep were the money of the day in a sense, right? That's how you barter. That's how you traded things. Here's here's what Bruce Waltke, he's um, a, a great Old Testament scholar. Here's what he says about these these verses. He says, wisdom admonishes him, the the ruler or the the owner of the the farm, um, admonishes him to concern himself intimately and personally with the well being of his wards. You know, instructs him. Inst- instructs him in quotes to be concerned with to have an intense involvement with them with the flocks um, that exceeds a simple cognitive relationship with them and this is really important to involve himself fully and personally with his sources of income will take the energy discipline kindness shrewdness and other virtues bestowed by wisdom so proverbs 27 23 is is telling us that we can't just like have a ballpark of how much money is coming in and going out, but that we should actually have intense involvement in managing our finances. 
again, it should not be our Lord, right? It's like if you're checking your budget like every 10 minutes, like you're checking a Twitter account, right? That's an issue, probably a problem. But we see all throughout scripture that God takes seriously the healthy and proper stewardship, right? Stewards have an idea of what they have and don't have, uh, a proper stewardship of the money and possession he gives us. So I would just break this up into several different things, right? If you're like, man, I don't have a budget. Okay, think through these things, right? If you don't have a budget and that feels super daunting to you, I would say at least start with an inventory, right? Like get a reality check of like what money is leaving your hands and what you're making, right? This this actually helps you get an idea. You know, sometimes, uh, especially in terms of like our time, right? It's like you you feel like you spent like four hours uh, writing an email and then you you look back on, uh, I don't know, your, your screen time report and it's like, oh, is that 30 minutes, right? And the same time, like you can think you spent 10 minutes on Twitter and you spent like three hours on Twitter, right? If we don't actually have hard and fast numbers, we can't understand like where's our money going? Um, so, so if you don't have a budget, that feels like incredibly daunting. I would say start with an inventory, right? Now, if you don't have a budget and you think like, oh, I could actually probably step into that. I think that's probably a good next step for me. Go for it. Like seek to align your money with your, your calling to seek first the kingdom of God. And then also align it with any personal vision you may have. You know, maybe it's being debt free or, um, paying for your kid's college, or, or it is giving more to the local church. Like have an idea and an intent with your money and then step into that and have your budget align that, right? It's really simple. Um, and then the third one, and I was say this is a practice for everybody. If you have a budget, stick to the budget, right? We'll talk more about accountability in a second. But if you have a budget, stick to the budget. Now, friends, there's um, tons of apps out there these days that can do this for you, right? Like um, my wife, she's she loves the budget. Um, and so she actually handed, handles our finances, um, and, and does, uh, she has a spreadsheet, right? Just like a, a good old fashioned Google Excel spreadsheet. Um, so that's one way you could do it, but there's also like, there's tons of apps out there. There's an app called Truebill. Um, there's also mint.com. I know mint.com is free. I don't know about Truebill, but there's tons of resources now, guys, that, um, it makes it simple. It at least cuts out like the huge overhead of like having to figure out how to run like different Google sheet, uh, Google sheet formula or something like that, which is intense and crazy and hard to keep up with. But, um, you, you can set up those accounts and, and you can track things just again through an app. Now, um, obviously like you have to be responsible with your data and things like that. So if that concerns you, like get an old fashioned Google sheet, like I, or someone else in our church would be happy to help you set one up. Um, so don't, don't hesitate to, to, to do something, I guess, or to, to move into stepping into that. Um, so the first live, live by a budget, another great next step in the practice of simplicity, regularly eliminate excess in your finances and your possessions. In my house, we call this a purge, right? <laughs> do it regularly, right? It's like, well, that sounds very Marie Kondo. It's like, well, yeah, it does. But if it's a good practice for people, if it frees us up to pursue the Lord more intentionally, like, why would we not try it, right? Because the, the temptation, friends, of money and possessions is, is always before us, right? It's every single day we're bombarded by the temptation to buy things we don't need. We always need to revisit this practice. Stuff begets more stuff. It's, it's insane, right? Um, look no further than the 50,000 storage units in America, which one article I read says that it would put a roof over every American if we like all stood in one spot, like it would protect us from the rain, right? That's a lot of storage space. Um, or, or take the, the ever-expanding size of the American closet, right? In an article in The Atlantic this spring, Amanda Mole, she writes, the American closet's expansion is the physical consequence of so many things about modern life in this country. 
the everyday attempts of regular people to reconcile an endless stream of new and improved consumer goods with their space and budget to figure out whether they actually need or even want the things that are marked, marketed to them, to have a room entirely of one's own. That article comes from, uh, or sorry, that, that's, that, that quote comes from the article, Americans are turning spare bedrooms into giant closets, which is hilarious um, in a dark way, I guess. Um, but like, th- there's the idea, right? It's like, look no further than your closet. Like I'm sitting in my closet recording this right now, and I think I have, uh, gosh, maybe like 15 pullovers. I don't know if you guys saw me recently, but I only have one torso to pull something over. It's like, why do I need 15 pullovers? Well, uh, everyone says that I need 15 pullovers <laughs> online, so I guess I should have 15 pullovers. It's ridiculous, man. It's like, so anyways, this is a practice that we need to do regularly, right? So do it with your stuff and then do it with your finances, right? Uh, Truebill, not, I, they're not paying me, I swear, but Truebill actually has a feature in their app that will look at all your subscriptions. You know, maybe it's like you haven't watched Disney Plus in like uh, 10 months. It's like, uh, cut that out, right? Or, or maybe you're seeing that you have like 15 streaming services. It's like, well, let's pare back a little bit, right? Um, th- there, there's lots of things in our finances and our possessions that we, again, we, we need to pursue simplicity on, right? If we have an intent and our intent is to seek first the kingdom of God, we always need to ask, is the way I'm living aligned with my intentionality or my vision, my purpose for my life and for my finances. Another next step that you could take, live below your means. Um, It's more likely that you've uh, heard the encouragement to live within your means, which is also good. But I think oftentimes people treat that as an injunction to spend literally every dollar, right? It's like $1,000 comes in, uh, $1,000 goes out. I'm living, uh, I'm living in my means, right? I think it's important to, to know like living below your means can actually bring simplicity because it helps us to stay unencumbered. Now, if you think about this for a second, like say, say you, you start a new job, um, you get, you get a raise, raise after raise after raise. And every time you get a raise, you raise your cost of living with that. Now, what happens if you get into that position, you realize, oh my goodness, like I don't like this job the options are <laughs> you can just like keep grinding it out and hate your life, which that's hyperbolic, right? There, there, there's, it's way more intricate than this. Please hear There's nuance to this. So don't, don't go quit your job tomorrow. Um, but you can like be stuck in this job and feel like because your cost of living is, is, has raised to that, um, to that new salary you have, like you can feel stuck there, right? It's like you can't quit your job because of all these things that you have to pay for. Now, so that, that's one option, right? The other option is to essentially, as you get more raises, like save more, right? Or live below your means. Like every time we get a raise, we don't have to raise our cost of living. Um, Randy Alcorn in his great book, uh, you know, he, he is looking more towards uh, church, uh, <laughs> growing the church budget, right? He says, don't always think about raising your, uh, your standard of living, but raise your standard of giving, which if you think outside the church, that's actually a really beautiful idea. Like what if we had the posture where instead of raising my standard of living, I keep my standard of living at the same spot. And man, I just practice radical generosity for the rest of it. That's if, if you look more into the fire community, financially independent, retire early, like that's their goal is like to get to the bottom, right? They're actually a race. It's a race for them to the bottom of the standard of living. They're trying to figure out like, how can I get the lowest amount of standard of living so that I can retire early and just do whatever I want after the age of 45, right? Um, that's also if you've ever read Walden, right? Henry, uh, yeah, Thoreau, um, right? Or yeah, 
anyways, one of those guys, maybe it was uh, Emerson. That's cool. Um, you know, I'll just stick with Walden. If you've read Walden, like the idea is that um, he went out into the woods to figure out how he could keep his cost of living down. Um, so there's lots of opportunity costs and other things in that. Anyways, moving on. So live below your means. Another next step, uh, give away your money and stuff on a regular basis. When we give away money and things, it makes us practice what we preach. If, as Richard Foster says, we have a joyful unconcern with money and possessions, we can take Jesus' maxim, it's better to give than receive, seriously. And we can experience the blessings of that reality, which rarely are financial, but oftentimes are spiritual, emotional, and eternal. So give away your money and your stuff. Again, that's a putting off practice, right? If I give my money away, if I just give it away, that makes me confront the reality of like how I relate to my money. So give away your money and stuff on a regular basis. Um, another one, don't let your desires enslave you, okay? Either to them, don't be enslaved to your desires, or the lender, okay? Friends, I talked about this earlier. Desires are powerful. That's why marketers try to tug on them and tell you what you what uh, what your want is really, They try, sorry, they try to tell you your want is really a need, right? But our desires are not always good or right. You know, think about the Jeremiah passage, right? The heart is deceitful above all else. Or again, as I mentioned earlier, Romans 7, it's like, I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. It's like, I don't buy the things I want to buy or I don't spend the money on the things I want to spend my money on. I spend the money, I, I spend my money on the things I don't want to spend my money on. Useless Amazon trinkets. You know, it's like, what is going on? So the writer of Hebrews, he encourages us in Hebrews 13, 5. He says, keep your life free from the love of money right? Unencumbered, not enslaved. (laughs) Be satisfied with what you have. Be content for he himself, God has said, I will never leave you or abandon you, right? That harkens back to to Matthew 6, to to Luke 12, right? God's going to provide for you. Now, this is really hard, friends, but it's also very important because if we are enslaved by our desires, it can lead us to be enslaved to the lender. Do you hear that? Proverbs says, the rich rule over the poor, and hear this, Proverbs 22, 7, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Now, friends, I I, I want to be really nuanced here, okay, because, um, well, for a lot of reasons. One, I, I don't want to make anyone feel ashamed, um, but I also, like, there's a reality that all debt isn't a bad economic decision, okay? all de- But the, we need to remember, all debt isn't created equal. Okay, I do think there are some debts that are directly tied to an uncontrolled, unmanaged desire. Specifically, and most notably, credit card debt and or like pay buy now, pay later services, right? That are that are currently on the rise. Affirm, Klarna, all those things. Now, um, uh, there's there's like always the the what about right? Like what about this or that? So so maybe you can make a case like a single mom. She gets an unexpected medical bill. She needs to put. Uh, the medical bill and or food on the credit card um, just so she doesn't like uh, uh, go into bankruptcy, right? So again, it's like there's nuance here, but man, like what I would rather <laughs> for, if you were going to play whataboutism, uh, what I would rather do if a single mom in our church gets an unexpected medical bill and she needs like she needs money for food, I would rather the body of Christ rise up and provide for her needs than for her Jane Doe single mom to have to get saddled with a 15% interest rate, right? Like that actually is more enslaving for her to have that. So friends, uh, just hear me. If you're in credit card debt, this is not to shame you um, in any way. Like 
as I said last week, like your identity is not bound to that. Your identity is not to your credit card debt. It's not bound to your student loan debt. Your identity is not bound to uh, your, your, uh, your loan you have on your car, right? If you're in Christ, your identity is not in your debt. It is in Christ. Please hear that. But if this is a perpetual issue in your life, again, we'll talk about accountability in a second. I would really, really encourage you to ask for help. Being enslaved to lenders, man, if we don't talk about our money, how isolating could that make you feel? I can't imagine. Like, if you feel so ashamed that you can't talk about it with others, like, it's just going to keep perpetuating. Like, so I would just encourage you like to ask for help. People are here to help you. Um, it's not like you're, you're problematic, right? Like, uh, that, that you're broken, you're unfixable. Like our desires have a crazy, crazy power in our lives. And we need to recognize that of the body of Christ and not be afraid to say, Hey man, my desire is leading me to do this. Will you help me like, and keep me accountable to not do that? It can be applied to tons of other things. Like maybe like, right. Issues of sexuality, right? If you have intense desire, if you don't pursue sexual accountability, it's going to be hard. Maybe it's, um, gosh, a desire for control, right? It's like you find yourself having fits of rage. It's That's birthed out of a sense of desire for control. So you're not broken if you have intense desires that manifest themselves into credit card debt, right? You're not broken. Hear me, you're not broken. But we need accountability. So I'll talk more about that in a second. Um, as I mentioned earlier, John Mark Comer in his book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, he's got some great practices to consider on simplicity. Um, and, and so there's just a few that I thought were great um, that I don't have time to unpack. Um, but I at least wanted to hit them. Um, so these are all related to buying, which I think is really helpful. Um, so here's some things that he encourages people to think about, um, next step wise and the practice of simplicity. Uh, here's the first one on buying. He says, before you buy something, ask yourself, what is the true cost of this item? What is the true cost of this item? So he's talking about, um, time, uh, but also then like further costs, right? If you buy a motorcycle, as soon as you buy a motorcycle, you're investing or there's a true cost added to the, to the repair, to the maintenance, to this time spent fixing it. Um, a silly example of this is like, uh, in my house, we just did a huge purge of toys. Like there was a real cost where like every single night I was spending 30 minutes, 30 minutes picking up toys. Now, right. I could have not picked them up, I guess, but it's like every toy you buy, you're like the true cost of it is like one minute of every day of your life, picking that toy up after your kid. Um, anyway, so, uh, before you buy something, ask what's the true cost of this item. The second practice before you buy something, ask yourself by buying this, um, am I contributing to injustice? Now he says specifically, am I oppressing the poor or harming the earth? Um, I think those are both questions we need to consider. Um, but I, I like the idea of like, am I contributing to injustice? Uh, a lot, friends, a lot of this, myself included, this is one thing that I'm like learning more about and trying to um, uh, be more mindful of in, in the way I, I spend my money and my resources. But um, there's there's just a lot of, uh, in a globalized society, right? The, the things we buy can actually, contributing, can actually contribute to um, a denigration of the Imago Dei, the image of God and others around the world. And because we don't see it firsthand, it's hard for us to know and experience the impact. Um, if you want to think locally, like two, two, uh, two things that you could like look into more, like, um, the rise of, of, um, uh, of like, um, uh, quitting in Amazon, uh, warehouses, right? Like a lot of people point to Amazon prime. It's like, we love getting things next day, but next day delivery is having a huge impact on our world. Another article that I just read recently, um, it's a long one, but, 
the title is It's Like Being Ripped in Two. Chipotle workers overwhelmed by online orders and furious customers. Um, there's this idea that in the pandemic, like uh, um, Chipotle workers, this is what the article cited, like they were just being crushed by the amount of online orders. And because the company was just trying to make more and more money, more and more profit, they were um, making more profit, but not, um, or they were having more orders, but not raising the amount of workers they were hiring. So it was crushing Um it was crushing their their workforce, right? That like that's God, that's unjust. I would say uh, it, it might feel strong of a word, but it's just things we need to consider. Um, third thing on buying, uh, John Mark Comer he says never impulse buy. Yes and amen. Like just spend one day, just pray on it, think about it. Maybe ask a friend, hey, this is what I want to buy. Should I buy it? But don't impulse buy. Um, and then the fourth thing, and this kind of goes to the idea of simplicity. He says when you buy, opt for fewer better things, fewer, better things. Again, this is tied to the idea of like fast fashion, right? It's like clothes are so cheap now. So it's like for us, we're like, well, if I have $20 and I can buy five shirts, I'm going to buy five shirts. That seems like a better deal. But the idea is like, well, it's not in abundance of possessions, right? Maybe we should buy one really good shirt that lasts a really long time. So those are some great next steps to think through. Um, I know this is turning more into like uh, of uh, I don't know, gosh, this is like an audio book than a, than a podcast. But um, just one final thing that's really important that I wanted to touch on is the idea of accountability. Now, I alluded to this last week, um, but something that honestly has puzzled me about my experience in the church is that we just, we don't talk about money or again, in my experience, I feel like we don't talk about money on a community level. Yeah, we have sermons, maybe financial classes, um, but it, when, when it comes to like boots on the ground, everyday life, we just don't talk about money. Now, I don't think my experience is isolated. You know, if you have a different one, I'd, I'd, love, to I've, I'd love to hear from you. You know, I've, I've heard and I love this. Uh, uh, like I've heard in the black church, it's not uncommon for deacons to have to submit W-2s and giving statements before entering into the, the office of deacon. It's like, that's awesome. Uh, I think, you know, I know uh, it feels like an affront to privacy, but um, I, I think that's an issue with, uh, with our posture. If we're like, whoa, that's intense, you know, um, but anyways, so I don't think, I say all that to say, I don't think my experience is, um, is isolated, that we, we don't talk about it. Um, and I don't think that, right, because uh, Richard Foster, again, in his book, Freedom of Simplicity, he's got a long quote here, but I think it's so helpful. I've actually trimmed it down, um, but it's like, man, this is so good. Um, I'm going to read it uh, in extenso, if you will. Um, he says this, personal finance is the new forbidden subject of modern society. How we spend our money is our business, and nobody is going to tell us what to do with it. Vigorously, we resist any public airing of so private a subject. We pull down the shades over our financial affairs. We balance our budgets and shuffle our credit cards behind closed doors. He goes on, today there's a heretical teaching that is an absolute plague. You hear that, a plague in American Christianity. It is the dogmatic and unexamined credo that whatever we gain is ours to do with as we please. If we earn $50,000, how we spend it is our private affair. Perhaps we will concede that it's legitimate for the church to talk about tithing, but the other 90% is none of its business. <laughs> this last part is so good. Um, and this is Richard Foster, right? It's like not Nick saying this. So if you want to get mad, you can um, send him a posthumous letter. Um, it, he says, how utterly self-consumed and provincial in no way can we twist the scripture to justify such a belief. Our lifestyle is not our private affair. 
We dare not allow each other to do what is right in his or her own eyes. The gospel demands more of us. It is obligatory upon us to help one another hammer out the shape of Christian simplicity in the midst of modern affluence. And he ties us to love. He says we need to love each other enough to sense our mutual responsibility and accountability. We are our brothers and our sisters keeper. Now friends, I know that that's coming on strong. <laughs> that's a very strong tone. But I think his tone speaks to the seriousness of the issue. Jesus spoke very plainly that it's God or money. He doesn't give this halfway answer. And I think Foster, Richard Foster, is simply echoing that tone, understanding the seriousness of what can come of us uh, not being able to journey together with regards to, te- to the temptations and everyday issues of money and possessions. Now, later, uh, Foster softens up a little bit, right? He gives an invitation, and I, I think he gives a, compel- a compelling vision for the church. He says, such a community of creative, challenging, affirming love may be slow in developing. Our wealth, again, here's the issue. Our wealth makes us lonely and isolated. Here's the invitation. What is needed is patience with each other and patience with ourselves. Our desire is to experience together the grace of a growing discipleship, which again, for him, he ties to financial management, to being good stewards. Church, if we can't talk about money here with each other, where can we talk about it? Is that only with our financial advisors who, who may or may not share the same uh, kingdom purposes that we serve? What if the church was a safe space where we could talk about the joys, the pains, and temptations of money and possessions? Now, frankly, I don't know what this looks like because I've never seen it done before. Again, I invite your feedback or your suggestions or things that you've seen done in your experience. But as I've thought about it, here's some things that I think God may be inviting us to as a church to practice accountability with in terms of money and possessions. The first is confession and repentance. You know, this past week, as I thought about the topic of money, I was thinking, like, I have never in my life confessed a sin related to money and possessions. Now, not to say that none of you have, um, but I cannot think of one. And as I thought about it more, I was like, wait a second, like, what even are sins of money? You know, like, the, the issue is I was having trouble or I haven't confessed a sin of money related to money and possessions because honestly, I don't have a category for that. Because I think me and probably most of us, again, just think as money as this like neutral, non-spiritual thing, or we're so accustomed to our American way of life um, that, that we at, at best just like it blinds us to the biblical injunctions or at worst, we just like ignore it so that we can keep on living how we want to live. This has really challenged me to think about um, my desires and um, my potential sinfulness as it relates to money and possession. So what are things that we potentially could be confessing? Well, in his work, Respectable Sins, the author Jerry Bridges, he's got several um, sins that he says we tolerate in the Christian life these days, in the modern Christian life. Um, And here's a few that he has that I think tie to money and possessions, though not exclusively. Um, We could confess discontentment. We could confess unthankfulness. We could confess selfishness, lack of self-control, envy, worldliness, and I would add even entitlement. Friends, if we believe the Christian life is one of confession and repentance, we need to have 
safe spaces <laughs> where people can can confess and repent of their sins related to money and possessions. So the first, uh, the first, I think maybe invitation towards accountability in our church, um, is confession or repentance. The second is encouragement and exhortation. When was the last time somebody encouraged you in your financial management outside of your spouse? Maybe probably never. (laughs) You see, if we don't let others into our financial lives, we simply cannot have anybody say, Hey, you are doing a great job in stewarding your finances to the Lord. Like, I am so proud of you. Like, I, I, you have inspired me, right? Or, girl, I've noticed on our quarterly budget meetings uh, in our newly minted accountability group talking about money and possessions that you've been paying down your credit card and not adding to it. Like, I am so proud of you. Like, man we need that encouragement in our lives. Like, but if we privatize our finances and our possessions, we don't invite ever, anybody in. No one can see to encourage us, right? That's not to, not to mention like how we give with apps now. Like that's a whole nother conversation, but like we, we just can't encourage each other if we don't know what's going on in other, each other's financial lives. And then at the same time, I think it's good for us to have another set of eyes on our money and our possessions. Why? Because our sin can blind us, right? And maybe if it's not even sin per se, like it's usually just good for someone to be able to look at things objectively for us and challenge us, right? Like someone asking like, hey, are you sure you need eight cardigans in your closet, right? Or, hey, I'm looking at your finances. You're doing a great job, but have you considered like, you know, maybe bumping your saving down 1% and giving 1% more to the local church, right? Like, that's hard to be challenged, but I do think it's good, right? Otherwise, we're going to get stuck, like just trying to, uh, as we talked about uh, earlier, right? Like walking in circles, lost in the forest by ourselves. Like if we invite others in, we can have encouragement and exhortation. And then the last invitation as we think about community, I think is it, it, we can have wisdom and help in a community having safe pockets, talking about money and possessions. Proverbs says that there is victory in many counselors. Now, I'll be the first to tell you like, the mo- most of the financial knowledge I have now was either because one, like I made mistakes or two, because somebody with more experience and wisdom helped me, right? Look, if you're listening today and you want help, like I or one of your pastors would love to help you in any way I, we can. Like, absolutely. Like, no question. Like, we want to help you. Now, I'll, I'll not warn you, but I'll let you know, like, I'm not a certified financial planner, right? I can't give you the next best stock to pick, but I can talk to you. I can encourage you with the gospel. I can provide you with accountability, right? If like, if you're like, hey, I want to take this next step. It's like, I can provide accountability for you. But what's beautiful is like, we can all do that, y'all. Like we're called in scripture, the priesthood of believers. So me and Pastor James and Pastor Norm, we're not the only ones you can ask for help. We all are called to minister to each other and help each other in the way of Jesus. Like, so maybe find somebody in your community group or, or in your equipping class or, or somebody you serve with, somebody that you trust and, and just ask them, hey, God is inviting me to do X. Will you journey with me for the next year as I try to live more intentionally as I steward, as a steward of what God has given me? Just ask somebody, invite them in. Now, friends, as we conclude our time on money, um, I just have a few encouragements for you. First, the, the great um, rule of spiritual formation is start where you are, not where you want to be. Okay. Start where you are, not where you want to be. A thousand mile journey starts with one step. Okay. Again, as I mentioned earlier, if you're like, man, I need a budget, but you have nothing like maybe it's, maybe it's stepping in and 
and just doing an inventory of your finances or, or, or thinking about other things, you know, it's like, man, I really, I want to give, I want to give a tithe to the church. I want to get to 10%, but I give nothing right now. Well, it might be hard to start at 10%. Like maybe it's starting at 1%. Maybe it's just committing to regularly giving and being faithful in that. Great rule of spiritual formation. Start where you are, not where you want to be. Second, if you're interested in, in learning more um, about um, financial management right now, we do have an, an online equipping classes going on um, on finances. Uh, we're doing it uh, Sunday nights at 7.30 p.m. If you're interested in, in participating in this, uh, you, you missed the first week, but that's okay. Um, uh, it started on uh, this past Sunday, January 9th. Um, but depending on when you're listening listening to this, like it's going to go on for six weeks. So um, you can email us. Uh, at, at Carlisle at SojournChurch.com and, and we'll make sure you have all the things that you need. Um, but if you're not able to attend, um, please let us know that you're interested and, and uh, maybe we could offer something in the future or we could connect you with somebody um, to, to help in, in ways that you need right now. Um, and then the last thing, the, the passage that we read today, you know, uh, it can honestly feel a little bit fi- hellfire and brimstone, right? Like it ends, verse uh, Luke 12, 20 through 21, it ends. Um, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And then he says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. He, he is saying, all that stuff that you live for, it's going to be taken away from you. <laughs> like Proverbs, we looked at last week. Proverbs says that um, the wealthy will not be spared um, at death, but the righteous will. Very hellfire and brimstone, right? It's like, that's probably the strong, like condemnatory church message we're used to. Like give more or God will take everything away from you. But but friends, that's not, that's not the overall heart of our God. <laughs> Right, I think he takes seriously stewardship. I think he has a lot more to say on our money and probably confronts our money and possessions more than we allow him to. But nonetheless, look at the tenderness of God shortly after that parable that he gives. This is what he says to his disciples. In Luke 12, 31 through 34, he says, But my disciples, seek his kingdom, seek God's kingdom, and these things, these basic needs will be provided for you. He says, don't be afraid, little flock. You hear him tenderly talking to you. Don't be afraid because your father delights to give you the kingdom. He delights to give you all these things. And then he keeps on with this theme, right? He says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moss destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, so friends, I uh, I, I just encourage you, like for those who are in Christ Jesus, remember your salvation is found in Christ. It's not in your wealth. It's not in your management. It's not in your budget. It's not in your credit card debt or lack thereof. It's not in your 401k or your kids 529s. Your salvation is found in Christ. Friends, the invitation for us as a church, the, the beautiful, freeing invitation is to submit to King Jesus because as he says in Matthew 11, his yoke is light and his way is easy. Friends, the way of debt, consumerism, materialism is actually heavy and burdensome. It promises you freedom, but it leaves us in bondage. King Jesus promises freedom and he gives it. Why? 
because he has spared nothing and spares nothing for those who are his, for those who follow after him wholeheartedly. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.